I invite you to join me in the Holy Scriptures this morning in the 12th chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. While you're turning there, I want to state what a joy it's been to my family and I to worship with you for the past two days. It's a, it's a happy place to come here to Vestavia. I love the spirit of this church, the warmth of your fellowship, the reverent attitude I see in worship. I love your pastor, have great admiration for Brother Joshua and his family, and uh, feel very blessed to have his friendship and fellowship in the gospel, and I know you're thankful to have him to minister the word to you and to pastor this congregation on an ongoing basis. And it's so good to see so many friends uh, this weekend and to uh, have the opportunity to worship and fellowship with you. Hebrews chapter 12, this morning I want to speak on rediscovering worship with the church. Hebrews 12, we'll read verses 18 to 24. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. May God add his blessings to the reading of his own holy word this morning. Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us the importance of Christian endurance. The writer has developed his principal theme and now he encourages these first century Jewish Christians who were under great persecution and pressure to abdicate their confession of faith he encourages them to keep on keeping on. You know, that's a message we need today. Keep going. Never, never, never give up. Be faithful to Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 12, he gives us three incentives, or let me say three helps to endurance. First, keep your eyes on Jesus. He tells us that in the first three verses, looking unto Jesus. If you're going to be faithful and be true to the Lord over the long run, if you're going to demonstrate a long obedience in the same direction, it's important to keep your focus on Jesus Christ. Instead of looking at the winds and waves of circumstance around you, Keep your focus on the Savior. You can walk on the water, 
You can do the impossible when you maintain focus on Jesus Christ. Secondly, he teaches us in this chapter that the way to Christian endurance is to see your challenges and difficulties in life as the Father's child training program. God uses our sufferings and difficulties to sanctify us, to grow us, to help us mature. I've never learned any major lesson in life except in the crucible of suffering, in the valleys of affliction. Every important thing I've ever learned in life has been learned when I was under trial and under difficulty. And I'm sure many of you could say the same thing. And thirdly, if you're going to maintain faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, Christian endurance, in a world in which there are so many reasons to fall by the wayside and to give up and to give in and to throw in the towel, it's important to rediscover worship with the church. Now, I wonder if Christian people today really believe this passage. It's surprising what it actually teaches. He's teaching us in this passage, my friends, that regular worship with the church and understanding the significance of what really happens here is essential. It's a necessity, not a luxury in the Christian life. You're familiar with the fact, I'm sure, that within the past two to three decades, there have been what many have called worship wars in the Christian community. There is the traditional crowd that says we love the old hymns and we love the architecture of, of traditional worship with the split chalice, with the pulpit in the middle, the word of God in the center, and we believe that uh, we ought to worship God the way that Christians have done in ages past. And then on the other side, there's the contemporary group that says that we believe that, Christ, that the church should conform to the spirit of the age, that we should appeal to people where they're at, that we should change and modify the way that we do church in order to please what is popular in contemporary society. And this debate between traditional and contemporary worship has been played out in terms of music styles, old hymns as opposed to contemporary praise choruses. It's been played out in terms of church architecture in which the pulpit has been removed from the from the center of the building, and it's basically in many places you've probably seen, and I'm make, not making any uh, poking fun or speaking derogatorily of anyone when I say this, but you know, a plexiglass mobile pulpit, you know, a lectern basically that can be moved so that the stage is central. And um, the whole architecture of the way a church is built is different in many contemporary worship settings. Many independent and um, non-denominational churches today have taken old warehouses or factories or you know, places of business and they've transformed them into 
churches, they call them. And virtually every aspect of how a church functions and operates has been rethought and redefined. These are called the worship wars, and it's been going on in Christian circles for the past two to three decades. And it's basically an attempt on one side to reform traditional worship to make it more appealing to young people and outsiders. And on the other side, there's an attempt to preserve and protect the traditions of the past. Now, primitive Baptists have purposefully tried to resist the temptation of conformity to the trendiness of pop culture in terms of these worship wars, and we've done so not because we're too poor to afford a stage or we don't have the skills to produce dramatic presentations, but we've done so on purpose out of conviction. And the conviction that we have is that scripture regulates what we are supposed to do in corporate worship and that the ultimate goal of worship is not to please people or to attract people, but it's to please and glorify God, not to accommodate the spirit of the age. And according to this passage in Hebrews chapter 12, corporate worship with the church is a supernatural event. Now, I didn't say it's a miracle. There's a difference between something that's miraculous and something that's supernatural. Every miracle is supernatural, but everything supernatural is not technically a miracle. The definition of a miracle is a miracle is something that is contrary or it's the antithesis of natural law. For instance, if a virgin conceives and gives birth, that's miraculous. That is contrary to natural law. It doesn't happen every day. Now, I know if some of you have witnessed the birth of your children, you've said it was a miracle. And I understand exactly what you're saying, but technically speaking, that's not correct. It may have moved you deeply. It may have, you may have seen the hand of God in it and thought that this is just the most marvelous experience I've ever had. But my friends, it happens every day. That means it's not a miracle. Miracles don't happen all the time. Now, God's a miracle-working God. He can perform miracles, and nothing is too hard for him. We know that. But my beloved, may I say that uh, miracles are exceptions to the natural order of things, okay? But even though it's not miraculous worship, for, for it's not miraculous that we take a text and we try to explain it and apply it to people and that we lift our voices in song. I mean, you got here today, not miraculously, but probably you put forth effort. You drove a vehicle, right? You put on your clothes, you got breakfast, you made the preparations necessary. We're here today and there's nothing really miraculous about what's happening at Vestavia Church this morning. But there is something supernatural. The difference between miracles and the supernatural is the difference between um, species and genus. It's the difference between um, a very specific category and the general category. And even God's providence, the idea that God intervenes in our lives, falls under the canopy or the category of the supernatural. 
But God can use very ordinary means to work his will in our lives. So worship is a supernatural event. Now what I'm saying when I say that is it's a taste of heaven. And that's what our text is talking about. You are come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the city of the living God, to the spirits of just men made perfect. And my friends, if you and I ever really understand what this passage is saying, it will revolutionize our worship. I mean that. If you ever really grasp what this passage is teaching, it will help you to see what we do here on a Sunday by Sunday basis in different terms because worship is a supernatural event. Now we sing about that sometimes. In this hymn by Samuel Stinnett, uh, Hugh Stowell, hymn number 105 in our hymn book, he says this, there, there, now he's talking about the mercy seat, there, there on eagle's wings we soar. Now that's a poetic way of saying that there's something sublime and something ethereal and something supernatural that's happening when we gather for worship. There, there on eagle's wings we soar. We lift, we're lifted above. And sin and guilt seem there no more. I want to ask you, have you ever been sitting here on the pews of Vestavia Church while Brother Josh was preaching? Or you were singing these great hymns of the faith and suddenly you forgot about your personal problems, your sin, your guilt, and the presence of God was so strong in your midst? and it was food to your soul, and you felt to be in a heavenly place. He's describing this. Sin and guilt seem there no more, and heaven comes down, our souls to greet, and glory crowns the mercy seat. Is that just a poetic way of describing flowers in the springtime and sweet birds singing and sunshine on my shoulders? Is it simply a musical, poetic expression of people who are more emotionally inclined than those who are more rationally or logically inclined? No, my friends, I'm telling you, it's a reality that what we do here is supernatural. If you look at verse 10 in Hebrews chapter 12, I mean, if you look at verse um, 22 and verse um, 18 is what I should have said, and verse 24, he's talking about the difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And I want to first talk this morning about what New Testament worship is not, what it's not. You are not come, he says in verse 18, for you are not come under the mount. This is what worship is not. And notice the contrast here is between the law of Moses and the gospel of Jesus Christ, between Mount Sinai, where the law was given, and Mount Zion, which is an Old Testament reference that has New Testament fulfillment in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not come to Mount Sinai. 
First, we're going to talk about what New Testament worship is not, and then what New Testament worship is. But you are come. You are not come, but you are come. You're not come to Mount Sinai. And I'll tell you that New Testament worship, first of all, is not something merely physical and material. Now, you're here physically, aren't you? You're here materially, and I know that you're real. <laughs> At least I think you are. No, I know that you're real. These pews are real. These songbooks are real. This rostrum is real. And we are physical, and we're, we live in the world of the five senses. We experience our world through the senses of sight and hearing and taste and smell and touch. My friends, real worship, true worship, is not something merely physical and material. Notice, you're not come to the mount that might be touched. Now, the Old Testament way of worship could be touched. They could see it. They could put their hands on it. It was something that appealed to their sensory perception. But New Testament worship is not a matter of outward form and ceremony. Somebody says, I just wish that we had pictures that I could see that would help me to worship better. You know, there's a whole group of people who rely on iconography and relics and um, physical symbols in order to worship God. And they say, I need these things so that I can feel closer to God. And I understand what they're saying, but my beloved, may I say, all of that is elementary school. The old law was preparatory. It was a shadow. And once the real thing, the genuine article arrives, you don't need the shadow, the symbols anymore. You know, so many of the secret mystery religions rely on symbology. Have you noticed whether it's the, um, you know, the secret societies or whether it's um, ancient Judaism? Or, and we have symbols all in our nation. The flag is a symbol. Monuments are symbols. And somebody says, I just wish we had more trappings, more bells and whistles in the church. Have you ever come to Vestavia and you thought, I wonder why everything's so cut and dried. You know, every, now you have, an elaborate, you have a nice building here, but it's not ornate. And it's not embellished with human artistry. And it's, you don't, we don't have pictures, and we don't have dramatic presentations, and we don't, have, we don't show videos. You say, I just wish that we did because it would be more interesting. Well, to a generation that's been taught to think in terms of 30-second infomercials, my friends, I know that the, the traditional way of worship may not seem as exciting because, our, because fact, uh, the fact is that many people today can't think anymore. They don't think anymore. But um, before I offend the whole congregation, <laughs> I will... Uh, I'll proceed that uh, there's a reason we do things like we do. And that reason, my friends, is because the Old Testament relied on symbols and, and artistry and items of furniture. Everything represented something. But my beloved, when the real genuine article has arrived, Jesus Christ has come, there's no need again for the symbols. Somebody says, you believe in replacement theology. No, my friends, I believe in fulfillment theology. I believe that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. 
that it was all leading up to the coming of the Messiah, and when Jesus came, there's no need for the shadow anymore. So the worship of the church is not something purely physical. Now, you say, well, then I don't need to be there physically. No, you need to be here physically because I'm scared of spirits. <laughs> Somebody says, oh, my spirit was there. I wasn't there in body, but my spirit was there. I wonder how you would feel some Sunday if Brother Josh's spirit decided to preach a sermon. You want him here physically, don't you? And you want him to take a text and to explain it, where you can shake his hand and, you know, be here to worship together. New Testament worship is not only something that is immaterial, basically, but it's not something intimidating and foreboding. Notice he says, this mountain that could be touched better not be touched. You're not come to the mountain that might be touched. Now, they could have touched it. It was a real mountain, Mount Sinai. But the command was, don't do it. Because if so much as a beast touched the mountain, says verse 20, it was to be stoned or thrust through with a dart, shot with an arrow. And the idea here is that the law in Mount Sinai was not a very welcoming place. It was intimidating, it was foreboding, it was forbidding. In fact, Moses was commanded, tell the people to stay away from Mount Sinai. And they actually built a perimeter around it. And they were told not to get too close. You better not get too close to God. Now what is the idea here? The idea is that God is holy. And he is to be respected and revered. And he's dangerous. You remember the line in the Chronicles of Narnia series when the Pevensey children asked Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, is the lion safe? <laughs> Talking about Aslan, the lion. Is the lion safe? And uh, Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's a lion, I tell you. Lions are not safe. He said, but he is good. And um, though God, my friends, is not safe, he is good. But let's first establish this principle that God is to be feared in the assembly of the saints. Psalm 89, I uh, forget exactly which verse, but God is greatly to be feared. Psalm 89, 4 or 5, I think it is, is greatly to be feared, that is respected, revered in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence among all them that are about him. May I suggest that one of the great voids in contemporary worship today is the lack of reverence in worship. I believe if we're going to rediscover worship with the church, the first thing we need to do is rediscover reverence. And may I say that's one of the things that struck me about your worship services yesterday and again this morning. I felt not that it was starch-collared and and that you couldn't move and be yourself. But I did feel that this was a holy place. I did feel that you approached God with a reverent attitude. I, I did sense yesterday that the spirit of worship was in this place, that the idea that God is real, that he is here, and that we are coming nigh to him, and we do so, my friends, and it would be dangerous were it not for the blood of Jesus Christ. Were it not for the merit of Christ, sinners have no right to get close to God. 
You don't want to get too close to the cage of lions at the zoo, do you? You don't stick your hand inside and pet them. If your children try to do that, you say, no, don't do that. You'll lose a, a, a hand or maybe even an arm. So we teach them to respect a healthy fear. There is such a thing as healthy fear. Somebody says all jealousy is wrong. Well, the Bible says there's such a thing as a godly jealousy. They say all anger is bad and sinful. The Bible teaches there's a righteous anger. God is angry with the wicked every day. And somebody says that all fear is bad. Well, I'm telling you there's such a thing as a healthy fear. We teach our children don't go in the road, don't run in the street without looking both ways. We're not trying to cripple them to the point that they are afraid to move or to leave the house, but we're teaching them to learn to respect the power of nature and the world that is around them. Learn to respect the water, learn to respect the fire, learn to respect the potential dangers and pitfalls. And I'll tell you the greatest danger that is posed to any human being is the God of heaven. My beloved, he's not safe. He's a holy God. And if the law taught people anything, it's that you better keep your distance and don't get too close. In fact, could the average Jewish person go into the presence of God in the tabernacle and later the temple worship? Could they? Could the average Jewish person go into the Holy of Holies? Only one person could go in there, and he could only do it one time a year, and he had to do it under very particular particular. Uh, circumstances. He could only go in with blood. He could only go in after he washed himself and put on certain garments. The high priest could only, he's the only man who could meet God face to face on behalf of the people. And if he didn't do everything right, he might not come out alive. You see, my friends, many people today have lost sight of the holiness of God. I believe one of the great perils of our age is we have recast God into a mold that we can identify with as our old chum from work or our old friend from our school days. You know, many people today have trivialized the great God of heaven and earth to the point that he's nothing more than just, you know, a, a friend or a parachute that will that if we need him. You know, a pilot wears a parachute on his back in case something happens, but he never thinks about it, never uses it, unless he's in a moment of crisis. Many people today think of God as someone who exists for us. I'm telling you, God doesn't exist for you or for me. We exist for him. And here's such an important thing to rediscover. I like the idea of rediscovery. Was it Post Toasties that had the uh, commercial some years back, taste them again for the very first time? The idea of, um, of refurbishing, of, of rethinking, of rediscovering, of, of, of gathering from the past something that can be useful again in the present. The contemporary mindset is that the contemporary mindset is that nothing 
from the past is relevant to the present. I'm telling you, my friends, there's some things that need to be recovered, rediscovered, and one of them is what the Bible has to say about genuine worship. Genuine worship is not something merely going through the motions. It's not something external. It's not a matter of counting beads. It's not a matter of, of saying certain memorized prayers. Now, if you're a child, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a little child saying at the breakfast table, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we are fed, give us, Lord, our daily bread. But if you're still praying that prayer when you're 35 years old, may I say you need to make a little progress, right? Need to learn to pray from your heart. Because we go through the motions, we learn, we memorize, but after a while, my beloved, there has to be some development. And worship is not something purely external. Neither is New Testament worship something intimidating and foreboding like Old Testament worship was. If you want to read the passage that is behind this passage in Hebrews 12, it's Exodus 19 verses 10 through 13. And the next chapter, Exodus 20, is the Ten Commandments chapter. That's where God said, Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. In other words, I'm serious about my moral principles. And God gives Moses the law. And it was such an austere experience that when Moses came down and saw Aaron and the children of Israel having a party around the golden calf that they had built, Moses was so incensed that he threw the tables down and broke them on the, on the side of the mountain. And God gave him a second law. He had to inscribe the tables again. And that second table of the law was put into the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and temple. The idea, my friends, in Exodus chapters 19 and 20 is that God is serious about his requirements and his stipulations. There shall not a hand touch the mountain, but he shall surely be stoned, says Exodus 19:13, or shot through. Whether it be a beast or a man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, then they shall come up to the mount. Do you know what the parents told their children when they were going to Mount Sinai that day? Children, don't get too close. Now, if you go to Klingman's Dome or you go to the Grand Canyon and you start looking over the side, you tell your children, back up, stand back, don't get too close, because danger threatens you. My beloved, may I say, danger threatened these people if they got too close to God. Now, by the way, that's the very thing we need, though. Even though it's intimidating, the very thing we need is to get close to God. And somebody says, well, are you saying that New Testament worship is not like that? I'm saying it's not intimidating and foreboding. It, it is not something that says you better not draw too close. New Testament worship does not, differs from the old, not in terms of the fact that the attitude of the worshiper is different, but the reason and incentive that we have to worship has changed. In other words, it's not that worship is any less serious in the new covenant. 
but we may now approach God with a freedom and confidence because of our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of Hebrews is the mediation of Christ. And as we quoted yesterday, the verse in Hebrews 13, 15, by him, let us offer the sacrifice of praise. My beloved, we come to God through Christ. We come to the Father in Jesus' name. We come because he's purchased that right for us. But under the law, so it's not that God has changed. God, the God of the Old Testament is not different from the God of the New Testament. He's still a holy, august, mighty, sovereign God. But my beloved, we come with a different, not a different attitude. We're still to be reverent. But we come, my friends, with a freedom because of what Jesus has done. And we can call him Father. I saw an interview with the great Arnold Palmer some years back, and the young sportscaster was apparently new to, you know, sportscasting, and you could tell that he was infatuated with Arnold Palmer, and he showed him great deference. Mr. Palmer, it's such a pleasure to meet you, and Mr. Palmer, everybody knows about your great accomplishments on the PGA Tour, and and I'm, I'm just so glad to be talking to you right now. And at the, while he was asking him questions, suddenly Mr. Palmer's head dropped from the, from the camera frame, which I'm sure drove the producer to immediate insanity, you know, I mean. And then when he came back up, he was holding a little toddler in his arms. And you could tell the young sportscaster was flabbergasted. He said, uh, uh, Mr. Palmer, who is this? And he said, oh, this is my two-year-old grandson. And said, uh, he's a sport, isn't he? And the little boy reached over and planted a kiss on Mr. Palmer's cheek. And you could tell that this sportscaster was just in awe of Mr. Palmer, but this little grandson only saw him as granddaddy. The little grandson drew close to him. I'm telling you, my friends, you can draw nigh to God today, but you draw nigh and I draw nigh because Jesus has purchased that right for us through his shed blood, which satisfied the law of God in our stead. So New Testament worship is not something prohibitive, restrictive. Instead, it's welcoming, inviting, and accessible. That's been one of the themes that has been developed in Hebrews chapter four, chapter 10, both chapters, he tells us, let us come boldly. You think that you would have just rushed into the Holy of Holies, the holiest of all, in the Old Testament tabernacle and said, I just want to see what that mercy seat looks like. I want to see what the cherubims are like. No, my friends, if you did that, you would, you would have been slain on the spot. But I'm telling you, you can come boldly with freedom and confidence into the presence of God today because of Jesus Christ. So what is New Testament worship? It's not something physical material. It's not a matter of form and ceremony. It's not something repulsive, intimidating, and foreboding. It's not something prohibitive and restrictive, but it is welcoming and inviting, but yet it should still be characterized by a reverent attitude on our part, for it's not child's play. This isn't a game of hopscotch or tiddlywinks. We're not up here to make jokes. Now, momentary laughter is, is very appropriate. Mr. Charles Spurgeon was once criticized for 
his humor in the pulpit, and Spurgeon said, if, if you knew him, how much I withheld and what I didn't say, then I, you would praise me instead of criticize me. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with momentary laughter. There's nothing wrong with speaking to people where they live. But my friends, I'm not up here to be cool. I'm not up here to show off my physique. I'm not up here to, to try to be modern and to try to appeal to people in a way that is catering to the popular palate. I'm up here to teach the Word of God. And you say, well, Brother Mike, this is, that's just your preference in the Primitive Baptist Church, or that's just the traditional mindset. I'm telling my friends, God is serious about how he intends to be worshipped. For instance, you go back to Genesis chapter 4 and read about Cain and Abel, the original worship war. When Cain thought that he could worship as he saw fit, and Abel worshipped according to God's revelation. That's what Hebrews 11.4 means when it says, by faith. Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by faith. Faith means that he worshiped consistent with God's revelation. Faith is a response to God's revealed truth, revealed will. You say, well, when had God revealed blood sacrifice as the mode of worship? When had he done that? Back in Genesis 3, the previous chapter, when he clothed Adam and Eve with coats of skin. What does it take to clothe somebody with animal skins. It takes death, the shedding of blood. And God reveals his will that a sacrifice is necessary, a blood sacrifice, in order to atone for sin. So when Abel comes to worship, now Cain came to worship too, but Cain wanted to worship according to his methodology. Abel came to worship according to the way that God had prescribed, and God had respect unto Abel and his sacrifice, and not unto Cain and his sacrifice. This teaches us, if it teaches us nothing else, that everything that goes by the name of worship is not necessarily acceptable to God. Amen. God is serious about how he intends to be worshipped. Now, we've spent enough time talking about what worship is not, let's talk about rediscovering the glory of worship. We ought to rediscover reverence in our worship. I hope I've made that point, that worship's serious business. That this is, uh, that we're not just here to pass the time. But I want to say it's also a glorious privilege. And in this Thanksgiving season, I know a few things to be more thankful for than the opportunity to worship with the church. I want to tell you, I'm never happier than when I'm here with the saints. Never, I've never known happiness like I've known here. As you sing these hymns like you did this morning, now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things has wrought and in whom our soul rejoices. As you sang, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins last evening, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. As you sang this morning, worldly treasures once my dream, I was tempted by their gloss until I saw the scarlet stream dripping from the cross. As you sing about the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, 
the goodness and providence of God, as you sing about the faithfulness of God, my friends, I dare say there's nothing that speaks to the deeps in me like these old hymns of the faith with their rich theology and the God-centered focus of worship. When the word of God is central, the name of Jesus Christ is magnified, the people of God love one another, they're there to care for one another. This is not just a sanctified country club. The church is not just another social gathering in which we all pay our dues and we say, well, I've been to church today. You know what church is? It's a taste of heaven. A taste of heaven. Verse 22, but ye are come. After he tells us what worship with the church is not, he says, here's what it is. And I want you to buckle your seatbelt because this is exciting. You are come. Here's where you've come this morning. Somebody texts you this afternoon and says, where were you this morning? I was trying to get in touch with you and I couldn't reach you on your cell phone. And you say, well, I was at church and I always turn my cell phone off when I go to church. Hint, hint. <laughs> they say, well, why would you go to church? Because I needed a taste of heaven. Because I get tired of this world. Do you? I get tired of the traffic, the honking horns, the blaring sirens. I get tired, my friends, of the, of the social clashes, the, the uh, conflict, the difficulties, the trials, the disappointments. You know, I can't just see everything that's happening in our world today and say, it's all wonderful. Now, there are blessings. God weaves into the tapestry of real life a golden thread of mercy, and there are blessings wherever you look, and we ought to May God give us vision to see the blessings and his goodness all around us. It's everywhere. We can sing with, uh, with the wonderful old artist, Oh, what a wonderful world. We can sing that, my friends, because this is our Father's world. He made it, and he sits as the governor and the sovereign superintendent of the universe. And my beloved, as long as he's on the throne... We know that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. We, we find comfort in that, don't we? But my beloved, may I say, when I come in here on Lord's Day morning, I find something I can't find sitting in front of the television on Saturday afternoon when my team is getting beaten by the other team <laughs> or that I can't find on Tuesday evening or I can't find very many places in this world, I find something when I gather with the saints that is heavenly. You are come, he says, to Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God. Now this is God's city. The, the worship of the church is the city of God. And I want you to notice when we talk about the glory of worship with the church, and I wonder again if we've ever truly grasped the significance of this description. But the glory of the church arises from four great realities. First, the locus of worship or the location of worship. 
Notice where worship takes place. You are come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Do you know what this verse is saying? It's saying that the locus of worship is heaven. You've come to heaven. It would be very appropriate for you parents to tell your children on Sunday mornings, children, finish getting ready. We need to leave. Where are we going, mom? Where are we going, dad? We're going to heaven. Because when you come to church, it's a taste of heaven upon the earth. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, don't just let this pass in one ear and out the other without really thinking about it. Don't just say, well, this is just a preacher's pious platitude. This is just a Christian cliche. This is real, my friends. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a taste of heaven upon the earth. You are come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now you can read about that heavenly Jerusalem in Revelation 21 when he says in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now God made the old heaven and the old earth. And Adam sinned, we know, and this world is under the curse of sin. But I'll tell you there's a new universe, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, says John. So he sees the end of time when this world has melted with fervent heat and there's a new eternal state, a new universe. And he says, there was no more sea and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I don't know if you're like me, but I've heard primitive Baptist preachers under the shade tree or in someone's home discuss Revelation 21 all my life as to whether this passage, this idea of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth applied to the church or eternal heaven. Is this talking about the church or heaven? And the answer is yes. It's talking about both. For what is the church but a microcosm, a small scale replica of heaven? And my friends, of course, the passage says too much to apply to the church alone. It says that there shall be no death in that city. We know we have deaths in the church, don't we? We lose people, we bury them, and we mourn over their passing. The passage also tells us that there will be no more sickness in that heavenly Jerusalem. We know we have sickness in the church. That's what our prayer list reminds us of every Sunday. It also tells us that there will be no devil there. Well, I'll tell you, sometimes the devil gets into the church. You never know a situation where the devil's gotten into the church and split it up and uh, caused havoc. So, so it, the church is not an exact replica, but it is a small-scale microcosm, a small-scale example of what heaven, the joys of heaven are like. And when we come to the church, my friends, you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, he's not talking about the political city of Jerusalem. You say, I've always wanted to go to the Holy Lands and to see the old city of Jerusalem. I want to see the Sea of Galilee. I want to witness the land where Jesus walked. I'm telling you, my friends, you have something even better than that. You say, well, Brother Mike, this is just subliminal. What you're talking about is metaphysical. I'm, I'm interested in the physical. No, my beloved, true worship is not merely physical. True worship is something that is beyond the physical. It's beyond nature. It's supernature. 
God, my beloved, has given us a city where we can live. And it's called the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to experience that on Lord's Day morning when we come to worship. The location of worship is heaven. When you come to the house of God on Lord's Day morning, you cross the threshold from the, sec from the secular to the sacred. You walk past that threshold, you cross from the secular to the sacred, from the common to the uncommon, from the earthly to the heavenly. And that's why that phrase in Ephesians, heavenly places, it's used at least four times in Ephesians. One time it's called high places. Means It means the invisible world of spiritual realities. Now here's a question. Is reality limited to the visible world or is heaven real? Are angels real? I'm telling you there's more to this world than you can see, touch, taste, and experience with your senses. There's more to reality, my beloved, than what is visible and tangible the seeable, touchable world around us. The invisible world of spiritual, we've been caught up and made to sit together with Christ in the heavenly places. That's the invisible world of spiritual realities. Now we also battle against spiritual forces in high places. As Ephesians 6 tells us, we are at war with the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. There are unseen spiritual forces that are seeking to make casualties of you and me on the battlefield of life. But I'm telling you, dear friends, we have blessings that are more than physical, more than tangible. We have an opportunity to go to heaven. So I hope you've come to heaven this morning. Have you ever wanted to go to Hawaii or to... Um, Niagara Falls, or perhaps to the Swiss Alps. You say, oh, I've done all that, Brother Mike. But you know, the thing about seeing new sights is the eye is never satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. There's always one more place to go see. May I say, if, you've never, if you never have the opportunity to go to the tropics or to paradise down here, when you get to heaven, you'll say, I'm not even upset that I didn't get to go to Hawaii. <laughs> I'm not even upset that I didn't get to see some of the things that other people said were so spectacular because I've seen the best thing of all. And when you come to church, my beloved, it's a taste of heaven. That's the location of worship. Why is worship so glorious? Because the locus is heaven. Secondly, the participants are noticed in the passage. A myriad of angels. You've come to an innumerable company. And the word company means Festal assembly. The word festal gives us our word festive or a feast, a party. Now, many people think church is a fast. I'm telling you, it's a feast. It's not a thou shalt not deny yourself and everything is off limits. It is a place to celebrate. It's a place to find joy. It's a place, my friends, where you and I can come and enjoy, if you please, a celebratory kind of atmosphere. That's what the book of Revelation teaches us about actually, about actual heaven. It teaches us that it is a festal assembly and that's what the church is. When you come to church, my beloved, did you know there are more 
worshipers here this morning than are apparent. You know, I get nervous before I have to preach sometimes. After 40, almost 42 years of ordained ministry, I, I still sometimes my mouth gets dry and my hands are clammy and I think I just want to go home. <laughs> I still get a little bit nervous especially when I'm in a different congregation than is normal, you know, if I have to preach at a big meeting or something. And sometimes, like last night and yesterday, I mean, this place was almost packed out. It was a, almost a full crowd, just a wonderful gathering of people. And, you know, I think, okay, Lord, I believe in the Holy Ghost. Please give me help. Please, Lord, use me as your instrument to bless this congregation today. Glorify your name in this service, but Lord, I'm weak. I'm an earthen vessel. I'm a leaky pot, and Lord, I need help. I get a little bit nervous, but I'll tell you, there are even more people here this morning than you and I are aware of. We've come to an innumerable company, myriads and myriads of angels. Now, we sing about that sometimes. In this hymn, in our hymnal, hymn number 600 and eight by Thomas Oliver's, he says, while the angel choirs are crying, glory to the great I am. So that's what's happening in heaven right now. Angels are worshiping God. While that's happening, I with them will still be vying. That is, I'm competing with the angels today. I'm not going to let an angel outdo me in worshiping my God. I with them will still be vying, glory, glory to the Lamb. Oh, how precious, oh, how precious is the sound of Jesus' name. Listen to this. Angels now are hovering round us. Unperceived amid the throng, wondering, they're perplexed, wondering at the love that crowned us. Glad to join the holy song. Hallelujah, hallelujah, love and praise to Christ belong. You say, Brother Mike, that's that's phenomenal. That's an interesting thought. Is it biblical? Ephesians 3.10 says, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. There's that expression again. The principalities and powers, those are ranks or gradations of angelic beings. Now even to the angels in heaven, he says, it might be manifest by the church that is made known by the church, made manifest, showcased by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. What that passage is teaching is that the church showcases, like a display case at a jewelry shop, the church showcases, it manifests, it makes known the manifold wisdom of God before the heavenly watchers. Now, by the way, angels are called in the Old Testament heavenly watchers. And you know what they're watching? They're watching us. Angels now are hovering around us unperceived. Amid, there is a bigger crowd here this morning than we ever dreamed. And I get nervous when I speak in front of big crowds. It's a blessing and a privilege, though, to get to preach in front of millions and millions of God's creatures. Every Sunday when I preach, my friends, angels are watching. When you're worshiping, angels are watching. Who are the participants of worship? Myriads and myriads, a festal assembly of angels, and then not only angels, but the entire redeemed family. And he says, 
to an innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly. Now, this is a local assembly. Back in Hebrews 10, he says, forsake not the assembly of yourselves together. The church is a local assembly. This is talking about the general assembly, that is the entire redeemed church, the general assembly and church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. These are the, this is the entire redeemed family of God. Did you know when you and I come to worship, we are joining with the disembodied souls of the saints in heaven and the entire redeemed from all ages who are worshiping God. And he goes on to say, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, where are their bodies? When you come to, the, to Vestavia Church, my beloved, you've come to a place where God dwells. God is called it his city. It's a heavenly place. There are angels around us. The entire redeemed throng from all ages past is joining at this very moment because God is not a creature of time. When we come to worship, we are joining in with what they're doing. An innumerable company of angels, the church of the firstborn whose names are enrolled in heaven, and the spirits of just men, where are their bodies? Their bodies have been buried. They've gone back to the dust, but their spirits have gone home to be with the Lord. They are justified, justified people, just men, but their spirits have been made perfect. Their spirits, my friends, are in heaven at this moment. I don't know, you may be able to think of people who used to sit on these pews. I, I've been here several times over the years, and I can remember old brethren, old sisters, who once sat here and here and here. You could call their names. I think of my dearly departed grandfather, the late elder Sylvester Goins. My godly paternal grandmother, Sister Minnie Belgoins. I think of my great uncles who played such an integral role in my training as a youth in the church. I think of people that I've loved and worshiped with and pastored over the many years and my beloved who've now gone home to be with the Lord. Did you know when you come to church you get an opportunity to join them? I'm worshiping this morning with my departed grandfather. I'm worshiping here this morning with old brother deacon so-and-so. I'm worshiping here this morning with blessed sister so-and-so. God bless her memory. I'm telling you, she's more than a memory. She's the spirit of a justified person whose spirit has been made perfect. And you have come today to the spirits of just men made perfect. Do you want to see your departed loved ones or be with them? Come to the house of God. Is that going too far with the passage? I don't think so. The locus of worship is heaven. The participants are myriads of angels, the entire redeemed family, and the disembodied souls of departed loved ones. And the recipient of worship is to God, the judge of all. God, my beloved, his very presence, the living God is here. When you come to worship, you're drawing nigh to God. Now that's what I've always needed and what I've always wanted. I want to be close to God, but he's too dangerous to get close to. But Jesus has purchased that right for you and me. And you can kiss him on the cheek. Now do it reverently. But you can say, I love you. And you can feel his embrace. And you can draw nigh to him because you are his children. He's not just your judge. 
Now, he's the judge of all, says the passage, but and that expression means he does justice on behalf of his church. But my beloved, he is an approachable God because of what he says next, the means of worship is the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've come to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Through the mediation of Christ, whose blood speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood suggested that a blood sacrifice needed to be made in order to approach God, but Jesus' blood not only made the suggestion, but it actually procured the right of you and me to approach God. My beloved, we need to rediscover the significance of worship today. We need to rediscover the reverence of worship in our day. We need to rediscover the glory of it. It is heavenly. And we need to rediscover the joy of it. It's truly a taste of heaven. Truly a taste of heaven. The hymn writer says this about the day of worship. O day of rest and gladness. Notice how he refers to Sunday. You say, oh, Sunday, we've got to go to church again. No, we get to go to church. We get to go to heaven. Next Sunday, when you come to Vestavia, think of it like that. Honey, let's go to heaven. Husband, are you ready to go to heaven yet? Let's go meet our loved ones who've gone before. Let's go meet God, the just living God. Let's meet Jesus Christ, our mediator. Let's join with the saints from all ages who are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ in lifting the anthem of praise and honor to the lamb that was slain. Let's go join the angels. You say, well, Brother Mike, what we're doing here is just, we're going through the motions. No, church is more than that. Worship is more than that. It, this is a day of rest and gladness. Oh, day of joy and light, says the hymn writer. Oh, balm of care and sadness most beautiful, most bright. On thee, the high and lowly, before the eternal throne, sing holy, holy, holy to the great three in one. Listen carefully. Thou art, talking about the day of the Lord's worship, thou art a port protected. Think of the imagery. From storms that round us rise, a garden intersected with streams of paradise. Thou art a cooling fountain in life's dry, dreary sand. From thee, like Pisgah's mountain, we view our promised land. A day of sweet reflection, thou art a day of love. That's what Sunday morning is. That's what public worship with the saints is. A day to raise affection from earth to things above. New graces ever gaining from this our day of rest. We seek the rest remaining to mansions of the blessed. Indeed, my friends, if we ever begin to grasp the reality described in this tremendous passage in Hebrews chapter 12, it will revolutionize our worship. And we won't be concerned then about being too formal and too serious about our order of worship. Rather, we will be concerned about whether we're serious enough about this glorious privilege of drawing near to God in worship with the church. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we give thee thanks that we, sinners as we are, may through the blood of Christ draw nigh to thee in public worship. Surely thou art worthy, 
and we come to offer our sacrifice of praise, to lift holy hands above, to give you the glory and the honor that is due to thy name. And Father, we thank thee for thy saints. Thank you for the hymns of Zion. Thank you for the holy scriptures which speak to our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity in this wide, wide world to find a Bethel spot where we can come and taste the glories that are yet to come. We look forward to that day when we will not be hindered anymore by the frailties of the flesh or by the distractions of this world. But until then, we thank you for Bestavia Church. May your blessing abide upon it. And when your saints come to heaven, to this place to worship, would you meet with us here and grant us your presence and your grace. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.